Welcome to the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast. I'm Oshita Moore. And I'm Jer Swigert. Join us as we grow our imaginations for joining God and others in mending divides. Fear runs deep, spreading like a virus. Hate is cheap. From afar it costs you nothing. Sister, take my hand. Brother, we will stand. Open up. Hello, friends. We are releasing this episode just days after war broke out in Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank. Jer was leading a team of peacemakers who were immersed in the middle of it. And while the environment of their training changed as war began, it still remained an immersive peacemaking experience. We are convinced that we can't simply read our way into the way of peace. We have to live our way into it. Our next episode will feature stories from their time in Israel, but this episode that you're about to listen to focuses on immersion and why we think it matters so much. This is our first From the Field episode, which was recorded on location this past summer in Birmingham following the Journey of Hope cohort's immersion into the Deep South. These special From the Field episodes will be part of our new podcast rhythm from time to time. Today, you'll hear from our cohort leadership team, Lynn Price, Dave Newhousel, Jer, and myself. We reflect on the profound impact of this immersion into the stark realities of institutionalized and structural racism. Then we discuss the broader significance of immersive experiences to the formation of everyday peacemakers. So here's our conversation. I hope it inspires you to immerse yourself into the way of peace. So here we are. We're literally four hours beyond the conclusion of the journey of hope immersion. We've been in New Orleans, Jackson, Mississippi, Montgomery, Alabama, Birmingham. We've been meeting with elders of the civil rights movement, the contemporary freedom fighters. We've been deeply immersed into the realities of institutional racism after five months of deep work together. And it's shaken us up, it's inspired us, it's challenged us, it's convicted us. And we get to sit here right now with Lynn Price and Dave Newhousel Oshida, and we get to get some fresh insight together around what it is that just happened to us. And so I want to jump into that in a second. But before that happens, I want Lynn and Dave to introduce themselves to you, friends, and so that you get a little bit of a perspective of who these two are and the role that they've been playing in this program and the role that they've been playing in the larger everyday peacemaking community. So Lynn, would you introduce yourself? I am Lynn Price. I have been living in Spokane, Washington for the past nine years. I was part of Journey of Hope last year, and this year got the invitation that I seized to be a pilgrim guide for this year's journey, just being a peer leader, a facilitator, to get to hold space as we go through this journey again. When I'm not doing Journey of Hope, I work as a hospital chaplain part-time, That's my training and my passion, but I'm also an artist, a mom, and I get to play those things out in Spokane, particularly with the refugee community that we have an abundance and richness 
there and I'm learning what it means to engage all these conversations primarily with my family and then take that invitation with them, model for them what it means for me as I am, as an artist, as a chaplain, and what that means to be a peacemaker in my context. Thanks, Lynn. My name is Dave Newhousel. I am from Denver, Colorado. I've lived there the last 14 years. And I was also a part of the Journey of Hope cohort last year as a participant, and then had the incredible privilege of being a guide alongside Lynn over the last five months and participate in this incredible journey. When I'm not a part of Journey of Hope, I'm a pastor and also the director of Project Renew. And we're all about everyday peacemaking as well. And so this work is really coherent with the rest of my life in Denver, Colorado, my vocational work, as well as how I hope to show up as a curious learner in my context in Denver, Colorado. A lot of that work is surrounded the issues of in people who are experiencing homelessness as well as immigrants and immigration and providing housing for folks in those contexts. What's really interesting about the past several days that we had together, we were led by John Williams, who was a part of the program last Mm -hmm. year, too. And he did a masterful job at immersing us here in Deep South. And he had this phrase that I have been really just pondering, that we got to spend time with the living monuments, storytellers about the movement and about the struggle and storytellers who invited us into finding our own place of immersion for this work. So I am so curious here, what was the most moving moment in these past several days on this Deep South immersion for either one of you? And Jared too, we'll get to Jared, (laughs) but we'll start with you, Lynn. Oh man, so yeah, we got to be in New Orleans and Jackson and we're in Montgomery. And so for me, just getting to experience and learn from these living monuments who embodied not only what history was, what they experienced, what I understand as history, but for them was current events. They didn't know that they were living into history, that that we would come back decades later to hear about, but just seeing the parallels of then and now and, and how the temperature of now and our current days. So, so... John Williams, the great and good John Williams, described just this over and over again that the people we were hearing from and the stories we were learning were ordinary, outraged, Mm -hmm. and organized. Mm -hmm. And I can identify with, I feel ordinary. (laughs) And I am learning what to do with my outrage and how to lean into it and listen to the voices that are outraged. I feel very disorganized. (laughs) And so as I'm holding that And thinking and praying through, we ended up at Dexter Ave Baptist, where Dr. Martin Luther King was pastor. And, you know, he, especially in my social location as, you know, an educated white person, he is the epitome of what it looks like to be a civil rights leader. He is hero and and untouchable. He's huge. And so what happened to me is I'm there in the church. I am full to the brim from all these stories and then got to think about Dr. King as a 26-year-old pastor Mm. just being faithful to the call of his job. And so I sat in the pews where he spoke and was thinking about 
he didn't know the master plan of his life as I know the broad strokes. Mm -hmm. And that life was made up of one day at a time. And so I found myself walking from Mm -hmm. Dexter Ave Baptist to the parsonage where he lived and where he certainly experienced the consequences of his peacemaking. And as I walked there one step at a time, it felt like the invitation to me was, I don't need to see the master plan. I'm not equipped for the master plan of where my life is going. And he maybe even would have said the same for his master plan. But that's what transformation is. It's being faithful to today. It's Mm -hmm. being faithful to that walk from the church to the parsonage and back. But on that walk, I passed the Department of Corrections, the school board, the capital, Mm -hmm. the real estate companies, the banks, the medical board. It was like every institution that has been systemized for white supremacy, for these histories to be repeated, we're on that journey. But the invitation isn't having to master and walk into every one of those buildings. It's just to be aware of them and then keep going day in and day out between that call of home and call of vocation and paying attention to what lies in between. So so for me, it took the huge figure of Dr. King and made me even realize that he began ordinary Mm -hmm. and then became outraged and then got organized so so that was my big thing it's one day at a time Mm -hmm. being faithful to what's mine yeah that's so good lynn Mm -hmm. as a pastor when i was a young pastor i remember immersing myself in the story of the civil rights movement and dr king i joined countless millions made perhaps billions uh, and seeing dr king as a hero and a bit of studying this movement, but to do so in my head. And I think this learning experience just catapulted me right into the deep south, the thick, humid, balmy air, (laughs) the greasy food, you know. Soul food, man. Yeah, that's right. I mean, just everything about this is an embodied experience, you know. And I've, for the last decade and a half of my life, I've committed myself to learning in context and learning through immersive experiences because I found that it... There's just nothing like it, right? There's nothing like learning in a context and exercising our curiosity in in, in a place in our bodies, not just in our heads and our reasoning minds. Yeah. And so there's so many moments, but as we made our way to Jackson, Mississippi, that's a place that I, I've always wanted to go because there's so many stories that have come out of that small nondescript, you know, nowhere town. And we found ourselves in an elk lodge that had been the context for meetings for nonviolence resistance beginning in the late 50s. And since that time from Medgar Evers and his early work before his assassination and and so many other people since then, just like this legacy building. But it's like this nondescript, almost like basement cafeteria-like experience. And so as we went in there, I wasn't really prepared for what I would experience when we were able to sit down with freedom riders, like real life people in their 80s, into their 90s who have been carrying the stories of that movement that I've only read about in books and seen in documentaries. And so right now we're sitting at a round table and there was a round table like this that we sat down at and I was assigned to sit there and met a man named Mac. Mac grew up in this county from the day he was born. But the first thing he said when he opened his mouth was, 
Hi, my name's Mac. My grandmother and grandfather were enslaved peoples. And my, my, my chin could have hit the table because to hear someone, a human, say like, my grandmother and grandfather yeah. Yeah. were enslaved peoples, like all of a sudden the proximity of that, just I was catapulted mm-hmm. to that moment. And the profound reality that for many of us today don't live in the South, read about this legacy, but until you're here and until you can hear it from someone and it comes out of the words of a black body and they say, this is my legacy, this is my family legacy. And to hear the stories that came out of his family, I'm still processing it. But I think to me, that was a poignant experience of just how profound this is. And I started our journey by confessing that as much as I've read about enslavement, as much as I've read about the racialized world that we live in and have thought about that, I'd say more than the average white person. I've wanted to believe that perhaps how we got here was far more a condition of our minds and our sort of tribal minds and our minds that want certainty, that want sameness, and that the othering we've done is sort of natural to who we are. I didn't want to believe that this was truly born out of greed Mm. and selfish gain that would actually treat and dehumanize people the way we actually have. And I knew from day one that I was probably going to get some bad news about my hopes for that. (laughs) The reality is that, like, I mean, my worst fears were proved true. I mean, I didn't want to believe we could be this bad, but I just have to say that, like, I've been really humbled by this experience uh, to really have to sit with the tension, the reality of, like, yes, this insidious reality that we find ourselves in of a racialized society and the continued oppression of black people is born out of greed and born out of a desire for selfish gain. And the story is we've had to tell ourselves and about black people in order to maintain that system is real. Yeah. It's real yeah. and it's yeah. living and breathing. And as much as we think that's a thing of the past, the truth is that legacy is insidious and it's mm-hmm. still deeply knit in the fabric Mm -hmm. of our country and our economy and our culture and our neighborhoods and our schools and our banks and and it's as much as i've known that to be true or suspected that to be true it's really taken this experience for me to actually feel with a level of authority through an embodied experience how real that is that is um thanks that dave i yeah bro (laughs) just (laughs) it's as bad and real and present as folks have been trying to tell us, you know? And I think it's taken this experience of a deep immersion into the realities of institutionalized and structural racism for me to come to terms with that. I think my moment, we went to a place called Donaldsonville, Louisiana, which is rural Louisiana, although Donaldsonville at one time was the capital of Louisiana (laughs) because it it was on the byways. It was on the river and the bayous and it was the intersection. And so we went to the rural spaces as well. And I thought that was really profound because we Mm -hmm. like to imagine that this stuff just plays out in the urban core. And some of the most insidious stuff happened in the rural spaces uh, where there's no accountability and limelight and such. While we were there, we went to the River Road Museum, which was phenomenal. And in that space, we met some incredible freedom fighters who are committed to truth-seeking and truth-telling. And in this museum, he pointed out a ballot box. And that brought me to my knees. And here's why. My great-grandfather was a Klansman. And my grandmother grew up in his home 
And it was a home that was so saturated in violence and terror Mm -hmm. that when he died early of a heart attack because hate kills, my grandma made a decision to live as diametrically opposed to her father as she possibly could. And so if he was a Klansman, she was going to get as heavily involved in the work of civil rights and the fight for black liberation that she could. And, and that involved a number of experiences and alliance building, including building cultural exchanges between Richland Center, Wisconsin, which is Lily White, rural Wisconsin, and Holly Springs, Mississippi, which is mm. just south of Jackson. Mm. And she would bring a black folk from Holly Springs to Richland Center and white folk from Richland Center to Holly Springs. And in that time, she's building these relationships and is given an opportunity to go to rural Mississippi to protect ballot boxes. So here's this like early 20-something white woman traveling into arguably the most dangerous state in the union, that being Mississippi, into rural Mississippi to protect ballot boxes and to fight for the black vote. Oh my gosh. gosh. While she's protecting the ballot boxes one day, a car pulls up and two white dudes get out. And they approach her and they grab for the ballot box. And she stands between the votes of the people she's fighting for and those who are the embodiment of the occupier and the oppressor. She puts Mm -hmm. her body between, her physical body between them And she says, you're not taking the ballot box. And they're like, absolutely, we are. And she said, well, if you're taking the ballot box, you're taking me too. So they abduct her and the ballot box. They drive her in the evening into the middle of the woods in Mississippi up to a seemingly abandoned shack, leaving her and the ballot box on her lap. They park at this cabin. They leave her in the cabin and spend the next several hours drinking and getting sloppy drunk. Think about this for a moment, right? A a young 20-something white woman in the back of this car holding on to a ballot box. And can you imagine? Can you imagine the violence that she's preparing to absorb? Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. Mm. You know? And a few hours later, they come out of the cabin stumbling drunk. So imagine that moment. Here they come. They get into the car and drive her and the ballot box back to the balloting station. Drop her off. What? And so, like, (laughs) when we're in Donaldsonville, Louisiana, in what's today called Cancer Alley, because of the chemical plants, we're listening to this family who's bringing this city back to life because they're telling the truth about the space. And he points to the struggle for the black vote in the ballot box. I dropped to my knees almost. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. And, and so, so that, that was a moment for me of recognizing I am the grandson of a matriarch who made a series of courageous decisions. And it's a major reason why I spend my life doing what I'm doing today. Mm. A couple days later, we're standing in front of the Legacy Museum. And there's a picture of a young black woman beginning to integrate, I think on her first day of moving toward the integration of school. Behind her stands a young white woman who is screaming, very clearly agitated, angry, hateful, and in her disposition. When I saw that picture at the Legacy Museum, I was still standing with my hand on that ballot box in my imagination, thinking about my grandma. And I looked at that picture 
And I thought to myself, like, I imagine that screaming woman is somebody's grandma. Mm. Yeah. And and it led me to this, like my grandma made a series of courageous decisions to put her body between justice and injustice because she was driven by the hope of a better tomorrow. And because she made those decisions, I think it's part of the reason why I live the way that I live today. And it made me wonder about that woman in that picture. It made me wonder about her grandson. And the decisions that, and I don't know her story, and I don't know what happened to her after that moment. What I concluded with is like, you know, these little decisions that we make, we might not get to see the evidence and the impact, the positive, restorative, reparative impact of our daily efforts. But when we live the restorative way of life as peacemakers, it reverberates, it ripples, and in my case, it rippled generations into the future. Yeah, yeah, you know, and so am I willing to give my life to this work, recognizing that I might not see the positive impact of the struggle, but give myself to the struggle nonetheless, because I'm going to have a granddaughter one day, maybe. Yeah, you know, and so that that was the moment for me. Hmm. Wow. Um, mine mine was different. So mine was at EJI, the Equal Justice Institute, the museum. Yeah. So they don't allow you to take pictures or videos. So, but you walk in and you immediately walk into this room where there is a large screen and there's the ocean and it's moving. And then there's this really haunting music playing. And then that's the story about the transatlantic slave trade. And I walked in and I've seen the new Little Mermaid three times this month since it came out and it it opens up very similarly just with this like ocean immersion immersion and it's like you just get wrapped up into the ocean and i had a very like excited hopeful posture every time i saw the little mermaid but that ocean scene there's beauty there and i get to see a, a mermaid like the mermaid that i watched as a little girl like who looks like me like I get to see that and the ocean felt very exciting and welcoming. Mm. And then standing there, the ocean evoked a completely different feeling for Mm -hmm. me of such trauma and violence and despair and dehumanization. And I just stood there almost like like Electio Divina because they play the same sort of opening paragraph. I just stood there and just read it five different times just checking in with myself and asking the spirit what that was for me that felt deeply immersive but I saw a through line between the dehumanization and the stripping away of the Imago Dei of brown people and the lack of respect for the ingenuity and beauty and intellect and creativity and the resourcefulness that we were and are in Africa stripping that away and the outcry that happened the moment they revealed a black Ariel and how that still mm-hmm. is a conversation room mm-hmm. that comes up of people just like, why do they need to have a new one? And that that white supremacy, that line of just like, is still there. Mm-hmm. And so it was just so interesting for me. And I just really sat with that and asked myself, what are the through lines? What are the lies? And what are the things that fueled that from the beginning? Are cropping up now mm-hmm. in a variety of different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. brilliant. One, one of the things I'm hearing 
even in our stories, is that there's a different thing that's happening in all of us because of the immersion than what happens to us when we read a book or an article or listen to a podcast or watch a movie. Those are all moving experiences. But I'm hearing us say there's a thing not only that we experienced, but it's doing something to us, mm-hmm. and which leads me to believe that immersion does something to us, making it critical, essential. As a matter of fact, in our book, Mending the Divides, this is the second of four practices of everyday peacemaking, immersion. The way that we define that is stepping off the road of comfort and into reality. And so let's talk a little bit about immersion. And I'm curious from y'all's perspective, why do you think immersion is so powerful? I can say that because it changed my life. As a, a pastor in training, I was in seminary, and as a part of my experience, before I went to seminary in college, I went to the majority world. You talk about leaving the road of comfort. A lot of us, I think, that have become peacemakers have some early disorienting experience, in which case we cross a boundary of comfort, a boundary of culture, economic boundary, right, which we're faced with that which is the majority world. And that can happen here in the U.S. in just a different neighborhood. It can happen, in my case, in the Dominican Republic by just showing up in a place and leaving the illusion of that which I think is normal, right? mm. which is as a That's young, <clears throat> white, middle-class male, like in my experience in college, suddenly I'm in the top 0.05% of the world as far as right. opportunity. But to leave that experience and go into a majority world experience where we were dealing with the issues of food security in a rural Dominican Republic, suddenly your eyes are open to that, mm-hmm. which is real. You get to get a picture of that. And so as I decided to go back and eventually was coaching the college level and taking students there. I was also conversely in seminary. So I'm in seminary in a lecture style experience, right? Studying, taking tests, quizzes, reading tons, exercising my cognitive mind, but nothing transformed me or changed me or lit me up as much as going and immersing myself in an experience in a different place Mm. and waking up to the reality of what is real, what's mm-hmm. real about the world, what's yeah. real about people, what's real about, and in my case, as a person who wanted to study the Bible, who, who Jesus was, like mm-hmm. who Jesus was in North Shore, Chicago, mm-hmm. in a very sort of insulated environment versus like in the mountains of the Dominican Republic in a rural area. There were two different Jesuses that were emerging. There were mm-hmm. two different pictures yeah. of faith in what it means to be someone who practices the way of Jesus. And that was so disturbing. Mm-hmm. And, and I had to mind the gap between those two things. And it's that disorientation and turning my attention to that gap that actually lit me up. I began to orient my life and my work around immersive experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah to take that, I just kind of think the analogy of like, I love watching basketball and I can read about basketball and basketball history. And this is yeah. like going to basketball camp. Mm-hmm. It's getting yeah. the feel of the ball in my hands. And it makes me think of just a moment I had when we were at the Peace and Justice Memorial, the outdoor lynching museum. And, you know, as much as I can practice in Spokane, wanting to be kind and see my black and brown neighbors and see their humanity and show them that I want to see them, I had a moment coming around the corner and smiled at the guard. And I'm a white woman and I smile at this young black guard. And then I look at the plaque and it's describing why some of these people were lynched. And it was for smiling at a white woman. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, oh "Oh, man, I initiated the smile to this man. Mm -hmm. He looked me in the eyes and chose to smile back. And I'm just thinking in the context of what we're walking through, Mm. 
in that history, that smile was weaponized. Yeah. I was crying. I was a white woman crying in some of these spaces, and those tears have mm. been weaponized. Yeah. And so taking some of those like embodied encounters mm. in that context and then having to process mm-hmm. that and having to talk about that, that's staying in the camp, that's practicing these things with people who are on this journey with me, having these conversations with me, yeah. thankfully not being mm-hmm. distracted by kids and dinner and, and some of the mm-hmm. things that, that make those processes of becoming harder, it's now gonna allow me to come back to mm-hmm. my context, being able to dribble a basketball a little bit better mm-hmm. and then appreciate mm-hmm. what basketball is mm-hmm. in a more real way and actually be a, a player yeah. <laughs> in the game a little bit more. I love that you said dribbling the ball a little bit better rather than suddenly being a Harlem Globe. Trainer. Oh, no. You know what I'm saying? That feels like the essence of immersion. It's an incubator. It's a training space. If we do immersion right, it should further transform us. And we should be able to dribble the ball a little bit better. You know, I love that. The other thing that I'm struck by, Dave, you said it's an immersion that you truly wake up. And what I find ironic about that is in the other world that you were living in that you described, and I think this is true for me, this is true for many of us, like the regular old insulated and safe spaces that many of us choose to reside within, we've actually convinced ourselves that we are awake. Mm-hmm. in yeah. those spaces yeah. mm-hmm. you know and so yeah. when, like what I'm struck by here is the great surprise is that when I intentionally displace myself not with a hero mentality but in the posture of a learner I realize that I actually probably am not awake in the context of my advantage and privilege and safety I've actually been lulled to sleep mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's right yeah and it takes intentional displacement stepping off the road of comfort and into reality that wakes me up. And I'll, I'll pull from something that, that John Williams referred to. John is the director of the Center of Reconciliation down in, in the Pasadena area and just a prolific, thoughtful guide for our immersive experience. He kept bringing up Minister Louis Farrakhan's statement that an organized lie is more powerful than a disorganized truth. And when I'm living in the space of comfort and safety, I'm lulled asleep into the dream that all is well and good, but that's a lie that I've actually been fed in, you know? And it's immersion that I actually wake up, but I wake up to the lies of that. Mm -hmm. And I wake up to the truths and the realities that especially our non-dominant culture sisters and brothers have been speaking to us for hundreds of years. But until I'm close enough to them and actually moving to a relationship with them, I've got no reason to believe that their narrative is true. Mm -hmm. So immersion confronts me with how lies have lulled me to sleep and there is a truth that has cost many lives and probably demands mine. Yeah. So one of the things that I was constantly aware of this week was the curation of the space by people who actually live there and people who know these stories better and have their specific way of telling their story. Mm -hmm. So like in Donaldsonville, at the museum they've curated or like Dr. Waters on the walk through New Orleans or even at the Peace and Justice Museum or the Round Robin at the NAACP of 
gathering those stories. Those are not ways that I probably would have chosen at home. Like <laughs> at home, I probably would have chosen like a podcast, like mm -hmm. one podcast with my bowl of popcorn and a glass of wine, <laughs> you know, yeah. or, or one documentary or like one book that I'm reading. When I am learning about this stuff in my own space, I can control right. the medium mm -hmm. in a way that makes sense for me. Mm -hmm. And this whole week, there are so many different ways that the story was told to me in ways that I would not have chosen, nor could I have replicated. Mm -hmm. But they showed me a different angle and a different aspect of the story. Even the walking and the being so sweaty and so uncomfortable. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And But then thinking about the walk for Selma and thinking about people sweaty and i would have never like gone for a walk at home and be like i'm walking on behalf of the people in yeah. selma you know so yeah. i think that is an important part of immersion is being invited into learning in a way that's different than the way you yeah. would choose because you will learn differently yeah. and you will become right. a different peacemaker from that yeah. can i just ask as well guys when you say that what comes to mind for me is that immersion also pulls us out of isolation yes and into community, into relationship. Yeah. What was your experience of that? This, oh. you Because I think we live in an era of social media, that's where we're gonna get our input. Podcasts are where we're gonna get our input. I'm gonna read a book, maybe be in a virtual yeah. book study, but like yeah. immersion means that I'm bumping up next to you. I'm sweating next to you. So yeah, and you know, there was a piece of my mind, not just because we were leaders on this trip, but there's a piece of my mind of like, oh, how am I going to share this when we come back to debrief? What is somebody else going to say? Like I was prepared for that space and time to to process while it was still fresh. Yeah. Not like, oh, I read this chapter and I'm gonna curate my rant when I get to <laughs> book club. And there were some really vulnerable and honest things shared. There's some incredibly hopeful things shared, mm -hmm. but that builds a trust and it builds a community to know that now we're doing this work shoulder to shoulder, maybe in our own context, mm -hmm. but like we're doing this work we have the shared language, the shared history, but we're not alone in it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm accountable. I love that notion of immersion invites us into each other's mess. I can make a decision to continue to prioritize image management, Yeah, <laughs> but it, in some ways immersion disallows it. It's so much harder to do image management in real time when we're all exhausted because we can clock that BS that, real quickly. Then it can be like, on Tuesday night, I'm going to be yeah. you know, in yeah. somebody's living room. Yeah. Now, here's the reality. Global Immersion has spent the last 12 years honing immersive experiences. We believe that the greatest spaces of transformation are in community and immersive. That's not sustainable and that's not realistic for all of us. Yeah. And we're very, very careful at conditioning us or further conditioning consumers of experiences. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, I got this immersion, then I'm going to do another immersion, then another immersion. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is this needs to become a habit of our lives. Yeah. 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 And so I'm wondering from, from our four perspectives, what does immersion as a practice of our lives this is important. I think we need to displace ourselves with a learning community into unique environments. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Let's do it annually. Yeah. I will be living in Spokane, Washington come this summer. And so <laughs> it's that is the place where the rubber meets the road in my immersion. And because that is the soil that I and my family are going to be growing in. That's where I'm going to be fighting like a peacemaker is Spokane, Washington. Yeah. So immersion has to look like something in Spokane. So how do you guys practice immersion? 
Well, while they're thinking about that, I just want to say this one piece. If we have the privilege of going on an immersion or having an experience like this, it is also our responsibility to look for who's not able to go on those trips yeah. and advocate like hell and mobilize to get people who need this experience or these kinds of experiences there. And so, I yes, I'm going to hear about the context, but also what we just said about being in the real place in the real yeah. time is super important. And so that's part of our work, you know, yeah. is we go through the door and we leave it open. We don't just leave it open. We like reach our hand and resource and pull somebody yeah. else. Yeah. Through yeah. The door. Mm-hmm. Spot on. yeah, that's good. And I think that speaks against what Jerry was saying about we don't want to just commodify these experiences and just become immersion mm-hmm. junkies, especially if someone else is curating them because we won't do the work. Right. When we talked about stepping out of the illusion, that which is normal into reality, that which is real with the I would call majority world experience is that we get a new set of eyes. We have a choice yeah. of having a new set of eyes and a new yeah. way of seeing. And so my guess is a lot of people that are listening to this podcast have had at least one of those disorienting experiences, whether here in the U.S. or elsewhere or in your life, when you've been faced with that new reality of that which is real. I think the, the invitation for us is to continue to choose to have new eyes in whatever context yep. we're in. Yeah. And not believing that we have to have some kind of well-crafted, curated experience that someone else puts together, but be empowered to say, mm-hmm. I can exercise my curiosity wherever I am and trusting that there is learning in my own backyard. Like Lynn talked about the invitation to the ordinary. So much of what we saw this week were just ordinary people. They were not remarkable. Of course, people like Dr. King and Medgar Evers and like, we can just come up with these heroes, but their stories are incredibly normal in the way that they start. And I think going through these towns to be in Montgomery, Alabama, I would have thought I was going to like this Mecca like experience. And the reality is like, it's kind of like a dingy middle-class town. You know I mean? There's a lot of reasons it is that way, but Dexter Avenue Baptist Church is a pretty normal looking little church. Yes, I was yeah. just in the basement of it yesterday yeah. and it's pretty, it's kind of drab. Yeah. It's kind of boring. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they committee yeah. meetings that our church has. <laughs> yeah, Donaldsonville is a, a no-name town mm-hmm. that, you know, some good folks there are working to change that. But like, these are ordinary places, yeah. but with the right eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a choice to be curious in those contexts. Mm-hmm. That's all it takes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All it takes is that uh, a learning impulse, a humble impulse of just saying, what's there to be seen here and exercising a new way of seeing in wherever you're planted, you know, your own backyard. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say for me on that, like it's the coming or returning home, which I'll do tomorrow. Yeah. More awake. And how will I see my context with those new eyes more awake? And I invited a few people as I was telling them that I was going, you know, saying, pray for me, think of me, and let's get together for coffee afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of my own accountability of saying, I'm gonna come back with these stories and I need you to keep holding that mirror of what's true and what's the lie and keep walking with me. And that both is the invitation to people in my context mm-hmm. to walk through the door, but is also to make sure that I stay in that place of awakeness and with those new sets of eyes to be able to stay fresh and see what's in my hand and where is their hurt and pain here and now? What is the current event that feels ordinary but has a call and an invitation Mm -hmm. where I am out my front door? Yeah, I'm thinking about a friend of mine named Nate who moved into downtown Oakland and 
was doing some work around mentorship of young black men in that space. And he tells the story that immersion for him looked like showing up in the backs of rooms when public events were happening, whether they were city council conversations, neighborhood council conversations, wherever culture was being created, reflected on or defended, Mm -hmm. especially by non-dominant culture folk, his practice was to enter into those spaces because they're public invitations. And he said he would sit in the back of the room and he would listen. And in in his case, oftentimes he was one of few white men in the room. And the way that he tells the story is after about seven years of doing that, one of the elders in the front of the room at one point looked back and said, Nate, you've been sitting in the back of the room giving ear for seven years. It's time that we hear your voice. Hmm. And when I asked him about that, I'm like, whoa, bro, seven years. And he goes, yeah, that in, in retrospect, that sounds about right. That's a time interval, a natural time interval of immersion that grows the currency of trust to begin to actually contribute my voice Mm. to the work. And I think that looks different in all different places. I'm not saying that's a universal truth. It's instructive to me as I'm thinking about entering into a new space. It's paying attention, and this has been my practice, whatever soil I've lived on, paying attention to where culture is being created, commentating on, or defended. And when there's opportunity to enter into the room, to enter into the room with ears to hear and eyes to see, heart to understand. Yeah, Immersion for me requires that I have to break agreement with the way that I've been socialized to yep. enter rooms, which is I show up with, with a lot of energy, I take up a lot of oxygen, I've got a lot of great ideas, and you would benefit by listening to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I have to break agreement with that in order for me to immerse effectively and listen long enough that I begin to actually gain an understanding, but more than understanding, build the currency of trust. Yeah, that's right. So that happens in terms of moving into spaces of injustice in our cities, but I also, for me, immersion looks like the human interpersonal encounter as well. And so some of us were in um, an Uber today, and I struck up a conversation with an Uber driver, and he led with some really controversial stuff right out the bat. And, and I could have shut down the conversation or ended it or just been quiet or looked at my phone, or I could immerse into this person's life. And so I think this happens in our own context at a systemic kind of citywide injustice level, but that the practice of immersion also has to look like deep curiosity and seeking to understand the person that I happen to be sitting next to right now. That's how pervasive I want this habit to be in my life. Yeah. I'm I'm most struck by the interplay of immersion and fasting or what are we willing to give up? All of us had to give up something to be here. Like I literally, because I have ADHD, I'm like, my ADHD tax was real high this week because <laughs> I lost a lot of things. I had to buy a lot of things just to be here. And I'm asking myself, what am I willing to give up when I get home to yeah. make room? Yeah. Because I think for me, the impulse is that I have to have a fully formed plan of my contextual immersion when I get off my plane. (laughs) But I'm not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has gone before me. The Holy Spirit is with me. And the Holy Spirit 
wants to show me the immersive spaces and opportunities, but I have to be willing to make room. And so I'm asking myself, what does fasting, like what is silence? What is like the practice of silence, of giving up, taking in information so that I can hear the spirit? What does that look like? So that I can ask the spirit, what is my immersion in this moment? Mm-hmm. What funds am I willing to set aside? What rhythms with comforts, like mm-hmm. those kind of things so that the spirit says, you now have room mm-hmm. and I can trust you in this immersive mm-hmm. space. So now here's your invitation. Cause mm-hmm. I think sometimes, at least for me, I miss it because my life is so full or my mind is so full. So that might just be the invitation. If we don't know what it is, it's probably because we gotta offload our souls, our spirits and our minds a bit. So spirit can say, ah, here it is, Mm -hmm. this is it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I love that question of what is my immersion? And I wanna take that question home with me because part of me is like, oh man, my life is busy. I've bought into the white American dream of soccer practice and soccer, I mean, and I just become kid Uber and those all things are good. So it's what do I need to make room for so that I'm showing up into the rooms, even if I'm starting standing in the back of the room, I gotta get in there Mm -hmm. sometimes. But then even when I'm at the soccer game saying, what is my immersion here? Mm -hmm. Spirit lead me to what maybe the curiosity is about the mom or dad standing next to me or about what the interaction I see between kids. So taking those new eyes, staying awake to what the immersion is back home. So let me just say this, watching Jer in the wild with the whole, his immersion in the Uber. I love Jer in the Wild. There was a question into immersion for Jer that I was so impressed by, and I'm not gonna go into details, but Jer said something and then the Uber driver responded in a certain way and Jer said, what about what I said caused that response? Or what about what I said is surprising to you? That's what it was. You named the emotion, like what about that is surprising to you? And that was such a question of deep curiosity, but that was what introduced the immersion. And so I think even to crafting those questions of like, what is that that caused that reaction? Mm -hmm. Tell me more Mm -hmm. about that. That might be the entryway into an immersive conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Taking a step further. Yeah. So I feel like we're already doing this, but I think there are some, some gentle invitations that we could offer as we're thinking about immersion. I, I think peacemaking becomes unsustainable or unattainable as a way of life if it's overly sensational. You don't need to immerse into the radical center of the most intense conflict in your city. (laughs) So I wonder what are some gentle invitations that we might offer here to, to everyday peacemakers who are wondering about the next step that they can take in this practice? We already said it a little bit, but I think it's trusting that the learning is in your own backyard, not needing to be this incredibly elaborate experience where you'll talk yourself out of it or analyze, am I doing it right? But like just taking a step. Right now, a lot of us are feeling overwhelmed by these monumental decisions that are happening at like say the Supreme Court level or with the upcoming presidential election where we just feel so powerless and we just wanna like throw our hands up and go, I'm, what, what can I do? Mm-hmm. But I've been shocked and I encourage anyone who is just curious about what's happening in their neighborhood. Like yeah. you're, neighborhood association if you live in one, mm-hmm. right? You could probably sit on the board of that because they're pathetically yeah. underparticipated. <laughs> yeah. You probably could schedule a meeting with your city council person, be a couple weeks out, mm-hmm. but depending on the size of your city, but there's a really good chance if you knock on the door enough times, you'll get a meeting. You'll probably get 20 minutes with your city council person, maybe even lunch. 
I've been surprised over time how many really important decisions are being made at that local level that you have incredibly influence on that we often discount. So, yeah. and maybe it's not even on, on the advocacy level, but like in this case, we came here thinking about racial justice. And if you would be curious about finding out what is the historical thread of black communities in the city or the area you live in, there's a story, you know, and it probably won't be too hard to learn about that story. There's a museum, there's a there's an elder, there's a church, there's a pastor, there's someone who can help you understand that story. And just take a step, mm-hmm. like make a phone call, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So Brother Daryl at the River Road Museum in Donaldsonville, Louisiana, as we were at the end of our time with him, which was quintessential black Southern, he was like, let me take you over here. Let me show you this. It was like, he wanted to be with us. And so we just went, we were slow and we were respectful and we took our time with him. And it was at the very end, like the very last moment that we could have with him because we need to get back on the road and we're on our way walking to our buses. And he gets a phone call from somebody and he's like, are you at my pool? Yeah, I can't get there. I'm with a group and I can do tomorrow. And he hung up and some of us were like, oh, like, it's so, it must be nice to have a pool in this weather because it's so hot. And he goes, yeah, I used to be a lifeguard. And I, and so like I teach neighborhood kids how to swim. Mm. So they sometimes come to my pool. And immediately I had this invitation to go with the delight. Like he delights in swimming. It feels mm. so good for him. Mm. And that's a skill set that mm. he feels so passionate about. Black children knowing how to swim because traditionally like black people, yeah. we struggle with knowing how to swim. Yeah. And that's one way amongst all the other like sensational ways that we've talked about the school, (laughs) the church, the museum, the garden, he teaches kids how to swim. And that's his immersion. That's a moment of immersion for him. And so for me, I'm like, well, where am I already showing up? What's delight for me? Mm -hmm. And how do I ask the question of where we've been focusing on racial justice? Where has white supremacy and racial injustice showed up in that space? Because I'm already delighted to be in that space. I just want to make it better. Mm-hmm. So that might be an invitation. If all of this feels overwhelming, like as a soccer mom, where does white supremacy mm-hmm. and racial injustice show up in that system? You're already there. Yeah. Get some delight from it. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's really good. Yeah, I think on that, I heard a sermon a long time ago that has stuck with me. It was Jared's sermon. Just about Moses and saying, I'm not enough. I free Israel. <laughs> I'm a farmer, I'm an ex-murderer, they don't want me back there, and just God's question of saying, what's in your hand? And so so thinking, what's in my hand, and what space am I in? And so, yeah, for Daryl, he had a pool. And so for that, it's also being curious about what's in your hand, Mm. and let your curiosity shape a dream or dream into your curiosity. And sometimes then for me, it's saying, okay, what's getting in the way of that? Am I a bit too busy? Am I being lulled back to sleep to the rhythm and dream of white supremacy, safety and comfort and achievement that is actually preventing me to dream out my curiosity? So, Mm. So wanting to just hold on to that and make space for the dream and the curiosity for what my same space, what is mine to do today out of curiosity in a maybe a little bit different way. I remember walking the hills of Northern Ireland with you last year as a part of Journey of Hope, Lynn, and (laughs) you were talking about how you had been invited to begin using what's in your hand, specifically instruments of art, 
among newly arriving refugee families in Spokane. What you just said is not good theory. It's what you've actually done, and now you find yourself deeply immersed in the refugee community, specifically at this time, the Ukrainian refugee community in Spokane. The reason I bring that up is because now with the Swigart family joining you in Spokane, there are two practices of immersion that I want to offer. One is there are opportunities of volunteerism in our cities that, that automatically create the infrastructure for immersion. And again, it's how we choose to enter into that space. Am I coming as a hero or am I coming as a sojourner? A human being who's on the way as well, and I'm here to offer companionship and build friendship. I love that now we get to join your family in a regular practice of immersion where we simply get to offer ourselves and we get to utilize the infrastructure of volunteerism to build relationships with people who have been traumatized by pain and a really hard journey to get to our hometown. The second invitation practice that I wanna invite us to consider is the power of patronizing migrant entrepreneurism. Mm -hmm. And and so in, in the city of Bend, where my family has lived for the past eight years, that's a practice of immersion that we've engaged in to simply not only get like patronize and get economic support behind, but it's amazing the power of patronage. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like you keep coming back to that food truck and any chance you get to bring other people with you yeah. and introduce them to the owner of that food truck who is finding a way to build a life for himself or herself and their family, mm. right? Over time, when you patronize with relational intent, it's amazing the invitations that begin to occur opportunities that you have to invite that person into the life flow that's going on in your world and then eventually potentially the invitations that they'll reciprocate to you into their world and so those are two just very simple utilize volunteerism and the infrastructure of volunteerism as the opportunity to build relationship and deepen your understanding and use patronage like enter spend your dollars and do it with relational intent and see the invitations that will emerge Well, these are four really beautiful invitations, and I'm just so honored to sit at this table with the three of y'all and to hear the invitations you're stepping into and to be challenged by them and shape my own gentle invitations. We have the rest of our cohort that have gotten on planes that are on their way home. They have gentle invitations. And we're going to get back together with them in a couple of weeks and hear what those are. And that gets me so excited it makes me really happy because the thing about an invitation is that it's contextual Mm -hmm. you know and we have ours they have theirs and our listeners have theirs and that is how the work of peacemaking happens we respond to the invitation that's offered to us in our space so this was a gift to have this conversation and just love y'all immersion makes family (laughs) same so so good to you all love you all An immersion into the Deep South, like you just heard us talk about, will also be the culmination of the 2024 Journey of Hope cohort experience. We're accepting applications right now for the 2024 cohort through October 31st. If today's episode inspired you, 
and had you desiring for your own similar immersion experience, one that you can take alongside Jared and myself, well, go learn more about Journey of Hope at globalimmerse.org slash J-O-H. The Everyday Peacemaking Podcast is a production of Global Immersion and is made possible by our Embers community of monthly donors. Sincere thanks to the Brilliance for use of their song, Turning Over Tables. Learn more about the work of Global Immersion, forming everyday peacemakers and reconciling leaders to mend divides at globalimmerse.org.